Okay, folks, we're going to look at uh, verse 37 of chapter 12 today through chapter 15, verse 21. Again, we're not going to read all of this. That would take a lot of time. We're in lesson 7 today, and we're going to look at the flight from Egypt as they begin their journey. Now, if you remember, remember they had the Passover meal that evening, the lamb that was killed. They, they put the blood on the doorposts and the lentil. And of course, the that evening, the firstborn of Egypt were killed. The next, even that evening, there was a great cry. Pharaoh says, get out of here. Take your, take your flocks, your herds. Everybody get out of here. And so remember, as they left, they plundered the Egyptians, basically, hey, I need something as I go, and the Egyptians gave them their gold, silver, and clothing, and they are on their way. So we're going to talk about them being on their way and getting to the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea. Some of your translations will say the Reed Sea, R-E-E-D, and that is actually the Red Sea, okay? So let's look at this together. First of all, we're going to see the journey to the Red Sea. The writer tells us that 600,000 men left Egypt on foot. 600,000 men left Egypt on foot. 600,000 men. The number of women and children were not recorded. In fact, it doesn't even mention women at all. It just says, and numerous children. Now, I need to explain to you, because you're probably looking at this and saying, what, women don't matter? No, that's not the issue. In fact, I want to uh, express to you that whenever you go through the Old Testament, and it comes to the numbering, in fact, there are different senses that are taken among the Israelites. We're go Actually, there's a whole book called Numbers, Okay, and that's the numbering of Israel. There's also the census that David did that he was not to do. There's another census in the Old Testament that they were allowed to do. When they went through and numbered themselves, they only ever, when they did this, numbered men. They numbered men. They never numbered how many women. They never numbered how many children. And what we know of when we see the other numberings. Why they only numbered men was for one purpose only, and that was to determine how big their army was. Because here's the thing, if you were a man in Israel, that meant you would carry a sword and you would fight. Well, you say, I'm a baker, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist or something, I don't do that. No, no, if you lived in that culture at that time, if you were a man, you carried a sword. And you would, you would fight for Israel. So basically, when it gives us a number of 600,000 men here, it's basically tell you, telling you the size of them in case they would ever fight. And you're going to see that as they get into the wilderness, they're going to fight at some point. Okay? So 600,000 men. So it's not a slide on women. It's not even a slide on children. What scholars believe is that possibly that there were over, are you ready for this, over a million and a half people who left that day. A million and a half. Wow. 
That's a huge group of people to leave to go anywhere, right? On foot. Okay? So they're not like all on horses. Okay? On foot. So this is a big group of people who are all of a sudden departing. Alright? All of a sudden departing. Now, they left with a great number of flocks and herds. In fact, so many that couldn't even be counted. So they left with all their flocks and herds. Okay? Left with their flocks and herds. Now, it is interesting. What you're going to see as we go through this section, this lesson today, is the sovereignty of God. Even down to the timing of things. What do you mean? Well, they left the morning after the Passover, and that morning after the Passover was a special day because it was exactly 430 years to the day that they arrived in Egypt. Isn't that amazing? In fact, remember the prophecy that was given to Abraham said, you, you're, 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 what's coming from you is going to spend 430 years where? In Egypt. So God orchestrated all of this to take place so that they could leave on the exact day that they came, 433 years later, in fulfillment of the dream of the vision that he gave Abraham about how long that they would be in Egypt. Isn't that an awesome thought? So you ever, how many of you ever think sometimes that God... God is too late in answering your prayers. Do you ever get like that? Or he, he's never on time. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we want him to answer now. And he, you know, God, God seems to be like waiting sometimes, right? Do you ever think that way? I'm going to tell you that God never waits. God is always on time. It just happens to be that his time schedule is in your time schedule. And you've got to adjust your life to get with his time schedule. So they left the morning after the Passover, and it was 433 year, 430 years to the day that they arrived in Egypt. Now, the Lord gave, we're going to see now, that the Lord gave the commandment concerning who can partake in the Passover in the future. And it's very clear that the only people who can partake in the Passover in the future are Jews. Now, if they had foreign slaves, they were to be circumcised. So the only ones who could partake in the Passover meal were Jews from the very beginning. From the very beginning. And he also instituted a couple of things here with the consecration of the firstborn. The Lord gave the commandment to set aside the firstborn for the service to the Lord. So every firstborn in a household, whether it was male, I mean, a, a human or animal, was to therefore then be set aside for service to God. So whatever the firstborn child was, they were to be dedicated to the Lord to be serving the Lord. If it was a firstborn animal its service to the Lord would be as a sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? He also institutes another festival. The Lord commanded 
Israel to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that is, that occurs right after Passover, and it's where they eat unleavened bread for seven days. Now, we know about the Feast of Unleavened Bread because when we look in the Gospels, we see that Jesus, at certain times, at certain festivals, will do certain things. And one of the feasts that is mentioned is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so if you notice in your notes, I've given you a little bit of an explanation concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're also going to see here about how they decided to journey to... uh, journey to the promised land. The Lord did not lead Israel through the most direct route, but led them to the Red Sea. Okay, I want you to picture this for a moment, all right? I'm going to hold up a couple things here. All right, let's say this is a map, okay? And so this right here is Egypt, all right? And this right here is Palestine. Okay, right down here is the Red Sea. Now, there's a little piece of a land here that connects them. Just a little section of land that they could cross over, and then they would end up crossing over to the top of Sinai into Canaan. Now, you would think that God, if he's going to get them out of there and take them right into the land flowing with milk and honey, he would take them the most direct route. He doesn't. He actually takes them south of where is the most direct route to the sea. Like, there's not like boats. I mean, think about how many boats it would take to move a million people. Okay? So he takes them to the sea. Now, why would God do that? Why would God do that? Does that sound weird to you? By the way, does God take you directions that don't make sense? Yeah. Yeah, you just have to trust him, right? You have to trust him. Now, the text tells us why. The direct route would have taken them through the land of Philistines, of the Philistines, and into war. If they had gone the direct route, they would have ended up in the land of the Philistines. Now, if you're the Philistines, and all of a sudden a million and a half people show up, you're going to be what? You're going to be not happy about it, and you're going to be like, what are these people? They're wanting to take over, and you're going to fight against them. Now, are the Israelis, Israelites ready to fight anybody at this point? No, they were they were slaves. So God doesn't take them that way for their own protection because there's no way that they're going to be able to fight off any kind of an attack. That's God's protection. Isn't that interesting? So sometimes God takes you a different way to what? Protect you. Okay? To protect you. So Moses, here's the interesting thing as we look at this section, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him in fulfillment of the promise made. Remember when Joseph, before he died, he made Israel promise that they would not leave his body in Egypt, but when God would take them out of there, they were to what? Take his bones with them and bury them where? In the tomb of his fathers, which is the tomb of Abraham. Okay? Now, that's the journey 
to the Red Sea. We're going to see a couple of more things here. The Lord, the Lord, if you read the text, it says the Lord went before Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, now we've seen artist renditions of that. You've probably seen movies try to portray that. I don't think anything would probably do justice in what we try to create that looks like it. That had to be an awesome sight. During the day, you see a pillar of cloud. At night, a pillar of fire. Wow. And it's the Lord in the midst who's guiding them. Okay? Who's guiding them. So now we're going to see that they come to the sea in chapter 14. The Lord tells Moses where Israel was to camp by the sea. Isn't that interesting? God says, okay, I want you guys to camp right over here. Like God's telling them exactly where they're to camp. Camp by the sea. The Lord also tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and Egypt will pursue them. Now, if you're Moses, I probably would have dropped dead right there. Like, we just went through all of this, we're getting away, and now you're telling me you're going to harden his heart again and he's going to come after us? But that's what the Lord does. Now, I think this is interesting. They're not, usually when you think of this, they, they're like surprised by the fact that the Egyptians came. No, God told them ahead of time, guys, I'm going to harden his, I am going to harden his heart, and he's going to chase after you. What does that tell you? God's in control. Okay? God's in control. The Lord stated that he will gain honor over the Egyptians and they will know that he is God. Wow, it didn't take all those plagues plus the death of the firstborn to know that the Israeli God is the God of the universe. But this is obviously something more that's going to be done. And again, I'm going to tell you, God has a reason for everything that he does here. He's going to do this because when they enter into the land, that's one of the things that the people that they conquer say, we heard what you did to the what? The Egyptians. Okay? Now, here's what we see. The Egyptians change their mind. The Egyptians question why they let Israel go and they pursue them with 600 chariots. They question, why did we do this? Okay? Why did we do this? And it only makes sense because basically they just inflicted economic an economic downfall on themselves because they just sent away all their labor force. Not only that, they sent away all their labor force with all of their gold, silver, and clothing. So it's like they woke up and decided, well, why do we do this? And so they chase after him with 600 chariots. Now, when I talk about 600 chariots, I don't want you to think about like a chariot you see on movies where you see one guy with a horse, you know what I'm saying, or a group of horses, and he's riding in a chariot. War chariots back then were big enough to hold possibly about four to five people. Because you'll notice that it says chariots and captains with each chariot. Why four to five people? Well, they would be basically like mobile units. You would have guys on the back who would have javelins or spears. And when they would go through, through a line of people, they would what? 
be killing people with javelin spears, even swords. So you're talking about 600 fighting units that are being sent after him. And, and it would only make sense because you're talking about a million and a half people. Did you understand what I'm saying? A million and a half people. Send you, so you're basically sending out 600 tanks. Okay? 600 tanks to take care of this. Seeing the Egyptian army, the people were afraid and cried out to the Lord. Seeing the Egyptian army, the people were afraid and cried out to the Lord. Now here's what we're going to see because this is going to be typical from this point out. They complained against Moses saying he brought them to the wilderness to die. Now this is what always amazes me, okay? Folks, do you think they were aware of what God did to the Egyptians already with all of the plagues? Now remember, they even experienced the first three plagues themselves, right? So do you think they know that God is real? They also have what? The pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud with them, right? And here they are, and the Egyptians are coming, and they cry out to God, but they're like, you brought us here to die. What does that tell you about human beings? We're completely fickle. That's right, Bruce. I mean, you can know that God is real, and you can even see him working in your life, but the next time a crisis happens, it's like you forget. Did you understand what I'm saying? You forget. You forget. Now, Moses calls them to have faith and see the salvation of the Lord as God fights for them. Moses says, look, have faith. See the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for us. The Lord tells Moses to lift the rod of God and the sea will be parted for Israel. The sea will be parted for Israel. As Moses did this, Israel went on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now that had to be an awesome thing, really. I mean, to be honest with you, to have a million... Listen, folks, we're not just talking about a million people. We're talking about a million people, a million and a half people maybe, and their flocks. Do you understand? And their animals. Now, do you think that's going to take a little bit of time? Yeah, because when we talk about parting the sea, we're not talking about parting the Susquehanna, okay? We're talking about a distance. And you're moving a million and a half people plus their animals across the sea. Wow. Okay? Wow. Now here's where it's interesting again. It says, the text now, remember it said earlier, <clears throat> chapter 13, that the Lord went before them Remember, the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire, right? The Lord went before them. You come to chapter 14 now, and it tells you the angel of the Lord was in the pillar of the fire, in the pillar of cloud. Okay, now what does that tell you about the angel of the Lord? 13 says it's the Lord. 14 tells you it's the angel of the Lord. What does that tell you about the angel of the Lord here? We've already talked about this before. 
Yeah, it's God. Pre-incarnate. We believe it's the pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He's there. All right? So the angel of the Lord guarded their rear in the pillar of the cloud. So God is the one who's saying, all right, you guys ain't going nowhere. He's letting them go, and he's watching their rear to make sure the Egyptians don't get them. All right? Which, by the way, that tells you the insanity of the unsaved. Like, how many times have the Egyptians seen a pillar of cloud that's trying to keep them from chasing after somebody? Really? And you're still going to go after them? By the way, how many times have the Egyptians seen the sea parted? Okay? I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you the insanity of, a, of a, an unsaved mind. It doesn't make sense. So when the pillar of cloud was lifted, the Egyptian army pursued them into the sea. So here goes, 600 chariots into the sea. Now the army bogged down as the chariots faced obstacles during their pursuit. It says very clearly in the text that some of their wheels came off their, their chariots. And so they're bogging down. I mean, at some point they're getting into this to the sea and and God is confounding them. They're bogging down. Their wheels are coming off in the sea. The Lord commanded, once everybody was through, the Lord commanded Moses to stretch out his hand and the waters will return. So they get to the other side. They're in the Sinai Peninsula. God says, stretch out your hand with the rod and the waters are going to return. As Moses did this, the waters destroyed the Egyptians in the middle midst of the sea. He destroyed the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Now, I thought about this for a while. Why would God have to destroy the army of the Egyptians? Anybody got, a, got any thoughts about that? Why would God have to do that? I'll give you a thought. What we know from history is, is that Egypt is one of, is the first empire. It's the first world power. And what Egypt would do is, is it would go out conquering. Well, the next thing to conquer, you can't go to, to the west of Egypt and conquer anything because it's nothing but desert over there. To the east, that's Palestine and Canaan. And history shows us that the Egyptian empires would go up and continually conquer and invade and occupy Palestine all the time. Canaan. Now we have a million and a half people who are making the journey to the promised land. We know that they're going to actually spend 40 years wandering before they take the promised land. What happens is, is that by destroying the army, do you think the Egyptians are going to be invading anybody anytime soon, folks? They're economically wiped out, right? It's going to take years for them to what, folks? Recover. Isn't that interesting? It's going to take them years. And guess what happens in those years? God protects who, folks? The Israelites. Isn't that amazing how God thinks of everything? Thinks of everything. So Moses, we see two things here. Chapter 15, 1-21, we see a praise and a song. 
Actually, the praise is a song. Moses praised God for his power and glory in delivering Israel and destroying Egypt. He praised God for delivering Israel and destroying Egypt. And then Moses' sister, this is the first time we see her mentioned by name. We've seen her before. Remember when Moses was a baby put in a basket, put by the sea, who watched after him? His sister. Who's his sister? Well, it's Miriam. Miriam called the women, the women of Israel, to sing that God had triumphed over the enemies. In fact, the phrase in the scripture is the horse and the rider, that God had triumphed over the horse and the rider. 